Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, the behavior-based UX research partner for enterprise leaders who need an independent perspective to align hearts and minds, and also the home of New Zealand's first and only human-centered research and innovation lab. You can find out a little bit more about that at thespaceinbetween.co.nz. Here on Brave UX, though, it's my job to help you to keep on top of the latest thinking and important issues affecting the fields of UX research, product management, and design. I do that by unpacking the stories, learnings, and expert advice of a diverse range of world-class leaders in those fields. My guest today is Alistair Simpson. Alistair is the VP of Design at Dropbox, the one place to keep life organised and keep work moving. And it's been keeping a lot of people doing just that, with over 700 million users across 180 countries and eight productivity-enhancing apps. At Dropbox, Alistair leads a talented and diverse team that spans across brand, product design, writing, research, and operations. He is also working with other company leaders to apply human-centered design internally, designing the future of work for Dropbox's employees. Before joining Dropbox, Alistair was a head of design at Atlassian, where he helped to scale the design team from 20 people in 2014 to over 300 people in 2020. During his time, Alistair led the design of a number of products, including Trello, Jira and Confluence. In what must feel like another life by now, Alistair worked at an agency called Neon Stingray, now called Voltec, as the head of user experience, where he managed a team that designed apps for use across web, mobile, in-flight, smart TVs, gaming consoles, and tablets. As someone who believes that design leaders are business leaders, Alistair has generously shared the learnings from his ascent up Mount Business, speaking to designers on both real and virtual stages, including those of the Design Ops Summit, Bureau of Digital, and the Leading Design Conference. He has also been recently interviewed by the Wall Street Journal and Fortune, and now he's about to have a conversation with me on Brave UX. Alistair, hello, and a very warm welcome to the show. Good afternoon. Thank you for that lovely, warm introduction, and hello to everyone listening wherever you are in the world or whatever time it is of day. Yes, yeah, so hard to know for us, isn't it? But it's uh, my morning, your afternoon, and we're here now. And I want to start with something that I discovered about you. It's actually it's a bit of a rumor. It's a public rumor. And that's <laughs> that you own, apparently, a rather large sneaker collection. Is that true? That is true. That is, uh, that is very true. I have consolidated a little bit onto three styles of sneaker. And for any sneakerheads listening, uh, I'll start with the least interesting one. So Vans Authentic, uh, I have a number of different colorways of those. Air Jordan 1 Lows, I have lots of those. And Nike Blazers. Uh, so I, I've consolidated to three. The wider story on that is though, it's part of a uniform that I wear, generally sneakers, jeans and a different t-shirt. I generally only wear t-shirts. You may never see me in a shirt. So yeah, it's part of a uniform to reduce the number of uh, decisions I have to make every day. Uh, so yeah, that is a true rumor. <laughs> have you have you come across Kevin Bethune in your travels around West Coast design and tech? No, I haven't. Ah, I haven't okay. actually. Kevin's who, a... 
Yeah, so Kevin's a previous guest of the show. He runs a design strategy consultancy called Dreams Design and Life, and he used to be a um, footwear designer at Nike as part of many other amazing things, including being a, a, an engineer in a, nu- in a nuclear power plant. So Kevin's had a wonderful career, and I should definitely connect the two of you. I was curious, though, what, what is it about sneakers for you? Like, why collect things? Like, collecting things as, as, a, as a hobby, like, what is it about sneakers that you find gratifying or interesting? interesting or enjoyable well i mean some of the different it's super interesting you're asking me about my sneaker collection by the way brendan um, and i appreciate it deeply as a designer because that's some somewhere in why i like sneakers i'm looking down at a book because one of the books i have on my desk is called collab which is sneakers cross culture and if you're not into that many you know if you don't know the background in sneakers you had the generic types of sneakers and then you started getting collaborations with different artists who would like put their own unique design onto, onto sneakers, right? And that allows people to express a little bit of who they are, right? And shares a little bit about, um, for me, that it's an important aspect of how I think about my uniform or how I come across or how I present. And then also, as I said, the different types of identity you can have in these collaborations, like my favorite sneakers are a collaboration between Nike and Slam Jam, which is kind of a snake a skateboard kind of brand. And they actually invert the Nike swoosh on the side of these standard blazers. So they're just a, a basketball shoe from the 70s that have the upside down Nike swoosh. And I just think that's really cool and slightly different. And it just allows you to share a little bit of your own personality and something that you're wearing, but also shows that you care about, you know, your appearance and how you come across, which again, I think it is an important facet of design. That would have been a controversial decision to get past the head of design or the VP of design or chief design well, officer at Nike. Interestingly, like I, I presented to the Dropbox board uh, a number of times last year and the chair of our board used to be the CFO at Nike for about oh, yeah. 10, 15 years. And Don shared with me, he was like, controversial decision <laughs> like our, their IP lawyers were you know <laughs> were uh, questioning uh, some of those decisions but because it is it's part of their brand right it's, it's it's a very integral part of their brand that these collaborations are changing right mm. which is super somewhat controversial if anyone's ever seen a brand guideline who's listening to this you'll know that there are there's always a couple of pages in there of the do's and don'ts with with Correct. logos and one of them is don't change the orientation of the logo that's right but it's I just find it interesting and fascinating. And I think it's it brings more personality to some of these collaborations and some of the sneakers that I buy and wear. Possibly not a sneaker collaboration or probably doesn't fit that box, but there's a company based in the US but founded by Kiwis, as far as I know, called Allbirds. And oh, yeah. Yeah, you've heard of Allbirds. So if you want, course, if you yeah. want some footwear that's sort of a a bit different to your regular sneakers, just for a bit of comfort, then Allbirds, I highly recommend them. I'm wearing a pair of them right now. Right, I yeah, I don't own Allbirds, but I have, I do know, I do know what they are. Now you mentioned earlier when we first started talking that um, your uniform doesn't include shirts, but I have, <laughs> I've seen a photo. I've seen a photo of you in the early 2000s, hard at work at a whiteboard Uh with a bunch of post-it notes. And you're sporting, apart from wearing a shirt, you're also sporting a uh, haircut that's reminiscent of Noel Gallagher from Oasis. (laughs) Were were you a bit of an Oasis fan when you were growing up? 
Oh, you have done your homework. That photo was in a book with Donna Spencer, who I know that you've, you've had on the show. And uh, she asked me if she could use it. I was affinity diagramming, right? It was right. in my, I was a UX team of one and I was affinity diagramming. And yeah, like so interesting. That would have been 2005, maybe something like that. And, you know, back then, I think my perceptions changed a little bit, but you, I was wearing a shirt and I was wearing like shoes, like proper shoes and like, you know, tailored pants. And, and I think, um, you know, it was just, I think it just showed how the culture has changed in the world of work. And, but yeah, I definitely was wearing a shirt. I was an Oasis fan and still am an Oasis fan. I generally listen to lots of different genres of music now. I don't actually listen to Oasis that much, but back in the day, I definitely was. My hair was probably inspired by, by uh, Liam or Noel, one of them for sure. Well, speaking of Liam or not, given what happened with Oasis, and for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, we're talking about the greatest rock band in all of the world's history, uh, a Britpop band from the 90s, and they're two brothers, Noel and Liam, and they split, the band split, and they're no longer a band. Are you in Camp Noel or are you in Camp Liam? That's such a hard question. It's like choosing your favourite kid. Um, <laughs> like, uh, I'm probably in Camp Liam, I would guess, maybe. There's no real why to that. I haven't followed the spats that have ensued since their glory days, so I don't know, but I'm probably in Camp Liam, I'd say. And before we move off this topic, is there any chance that we might see a return of the Oasis-inspired haircut? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> that, is a, that is a former hair, hair phase should we say? I'm just thankful that I still have all my hair. Like that's genuinely, I'm going gray. I, I don't know if that will show up, but I'm definitely going gray, but I'm just thankful that I have my, all of my head of hair, but no, probably no more Oasis. Okay. Good to know. Good to know. All right. Well, let's come to your path to design now. Right. now I went yeah. back and had a look at your history and heard you talk about this as well. And you didn't train as a designer, did you? No, I didn't. That's right. That's right. I can, I mean, the backstory that you won't have even seen on LinkedIn, because I guess you don't put this on LinkedIn is I actually wanted to be a professional soccer player or football being from England. And I was actually at professional club until the age of 16. And I didn't make it at the age of 16 for those who aren't aware 16 is when you either get taken on a professional contract or not. And I didn't make it. And at 16, I was honestly very sad about that. Uh, I did continue to play semi-professional football until I was 37 when I, I always do the air quotes when I had to retire. It makes me sound you know, nicer. It makes it sound better, I think. Uh, but I did play semi-professional until 37. But outside of the football, no, I, I didn't start in design. I mean, the, the full story, I was applying for graduate jobs in London and I got turned down by, I think it was three or four different graduate jobs. And my best friend at the time said, hey, do you want to go traveling around the world? And I was like, well, that sounds like something I would have normally said no to, having never really left England. And lo next thing I know, I saved up a bunch of money and I went traveling and started in South America. First stop was Rio in Brazil. And then we traveled all around South Central America, New Zealand. We came to, to your hometown in Auckland and went to the North and South Islands, Australia, Southeast Asia. And... And then after a year of traveling, I, I remember calling my parents, you know, this is back when you had to get phone cards. Like there wasn't you know, mobile phones, this is 2003. Called my parents. I'm like, hey, I'm not coming home. I'm going to go back to Australia and live and work for a year. And I went back 
uh, to Australia, didn't have much money at all. Like honestly had a few hundred pounds in my bank account at the time. And there was only a few different types of jobs you could get as a, on a short-term working visa. And I ended up in a call center. That was where I ended up doing inbound and outbound sales. Uh, essentially, that was my first, in inverted commas, real job outside of college. But something that maybe we'll talk a bit more about this, I learned a lot about the power of communication, the power, and the power also of listening, like active listening and asking questions. Because really, while sales and call centers can get a bad rap, that's really what you have to do in those scenarios. Like if you've got someone on the phone who's angry with you, how do you listen, ask questions, and actually communicate effectively and clearly with them? But that was where I started. Then I went back to London because my visa ran out and I, I started working in a kind of marketing SEO kind of role um, and then eventually found my way back to Australia where I was working at, at the time, the largest B2B public publisher in the world, Read Business Information. They were, you would have never heard of them. They had magazines, like print magazines and things like agriculture, farming, um, architecture, manufacturing. But I, in Australia, I was working for the digital division, which was just 10 people. And we were taking a lot of the print revenue, which was obviously plummeting at the time in the early 2000s and transferring it online. And that was where I became a designer. Like my the CEO took a chance on me, essentially. And he transitioned me into this kind of hybrid design product manager role. And I became a design team of one. I was doing interaction design, visual design, branding. I built my own usability testing lab uh, using Moray software for anyone that remembers Moray. It was like $2,000. It was like a huge commitment at the time. And I just, we just started building products and I went through, did lots of mistakes. I got some great mentors back in the day and I was, you know, just enjoying that kind of path of building and making and designing. And also strangely, as I reflect back on it now, it was almost a very much startup journey. That digital division inside of a large publisher went from 10 to 200 people in like 18 months. Like with this huge scaling journey. And we went from zero to many tens of millions of revenue in a short space of time too. And so, yeah, that was where I started. Like that was where I got into design. I want to come back to what you said about professional football at the age of 16. Yeah, and, sure. And, and sort of draw join a few dots between the... Yeah being told that you weren't you weren't picked, right? So you had to yep. confront the decision not to get picked up on a professional contract. Yep. And then th this is perhaps me projecting or listening to what you're saying here. It sounds like given what you then went to study and then your travels abroad and how you sort of fell into design, it seems like you were a little lost in the years that immediately followed the decision or the I suppose the rejection from professional football is that a an unfair way of characterizing how things were for you like did you see yourself as a teenager you thought that you were going to the English Premier League oh yeah that was the that was the hope yeah for sure and like that was the hope and I don't know whether I'm just trying to it's a, it's a super interesting question I'm trying to reflect on was I lost I mean I think I was definitely searching for a new path I think and and anybody who's 16 and who's trying to search for a new path, how do you know? Like, you know, I, th I think especially in today's day and age where, you know, many of the job titles that will be around in 10 years haven't been invented yet, right? You know, they, they literally haven't been invented yet. And so, you know, 10 years ago, the thought of having like an AI engineer 
didn't exist. So how is a 16 year old going to know that they want to be an AI engineer? Right. And whilst, you know, design roles were around back then, you know, I didn't necessarily know exactly what it was that I wanted to do. And so I think I was searching for a new path, but some of the things that helped me on that path were being curious. Like that was something that I was definitely interested in. And so going traveling and exposing myself to different and new cultures was like really inspiring for me. Right. And that curiosity, the uh, willingness when I went to college or university, you know, I studied consumer behavior and psychology. And so that again, started getting me thinking about, well, why do people do things? Why do, how do you make things that people want to use? How do you make things that people care about? And, you know, why do people buy things? Right. And so that curiosity to kind of change, change the way I'd been thinking about my career in inverted commas up until that point, I think has helped me. Uh, tremendously through my kind of life. And again, it's really hard. Like, you know, I, I don't know whether I was lost at the time. Again, I'm not reacting to that word. I just don't know as a 16 year old, maybe I did feel lost because it was something I'd been working towards for like 10, 11 years to do that. But as I said, it's, you have to then adapt. And I think, you know, I, I know that we talked a little bit about this, you know, prior to the show. It's like, of course, when you go through kind of suffering or something doesn't go as planned, there is, everybody is going to go through a moment of like, this sucks, you know, like, you know, this always sucks, right? And you're entitled to those moments, but then how you then respond to them, I think is what's really important because you can actually learn a lot through those moments. And similar, you said, you know, you mentioned um, the, the football, you know, the rejection, but at 21, I was also rejected from three to five different graduates in London, right? And I could have been like, well, this sucks. What am I going to do? And Instead, I took an opportunity, another door open to go traveling, which personally I credit for why I've been had the opportunity to live all around the world uh, because I said yes and I was curious and that led me to different places. And I used it as a positive thing rather than looking and anchoring on it as, hey, this sucks, this isn't, in, you know, what's so terrible about it. And so, I don't know, that, that's how I would characterize it, Brendan. Mm. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. Now, this we've talked about a little bit about rejection, and there's rejection inherently baked into our education system. And I know that this is, as a father, this is something that you are particularly interested in, and the way in which you've decided uh, to shape your children's education has has been an alternative pathway to the ones that are most uh, usually offered to most people. Uh, before we get into the nuts and bolts of design leadership, you've previously said, and I'll quote you now, before I'm a designer, I'm a father. I have two young kids, Frankie and Buddy. Now, kids are messy. They don't approach problems with process. They're inquisitive and they're creative by nature. And it's proven that giving kids unstructured playtime helps with creativity. Yet many parents, and schools still structure their kids' time down to the minute. So thinking about what you said there and now thinking about your role as a VP of design leading this large design organisation at one of the most recognisable technology companies in the world, what role, if any, does creativity play in how you do your job? Oh, such a great question. I love the quote. I mean, I don't know whether we'll talk more about education, <laughs> but that's something that's been around and unchanged for kind of a hundred years, really, to help people in go into roles that were in factories back in the day, you know, or 
what I would actually term as complicated environments per se, where you have to follow checklists because it's complex, complicated versus I think the environment we're in now is complex and complex. You can't just logically apply a checklist to, right? Like you have to actually think, but I digress. The How it applies to my role as a design leader at a large company, I think it's about how you approach those problems that a company has and how you partner with different cross-functional partners to reframe the problem in a different light, to apply creativity in your designer mind to that specific problem. And that can help unlock new possibilities and new pathways, I think. And so that is how I would, in a nutshell, kind of share how creativity affects how I think about problems and my role in a tech company. And I'll probably pause there and I'll let you dig into to any aspect of that. Yeah, I know you've been working with other senior leaders at Dropbox on redesigning the future of work. And that initiative was sparked by the arrival of the pandemic. And it's been a key area of focus for you. And that's why I was curious around this um, notion of creativity and that cross-cultural, uh, cross cross-discipline um, uh, cl- collaboration that you've been speaking of. But before we get into that specifically, thinking about what you said there about your children and the time, like the way in which time is organized or structured for children to learn uh, traditionally versus ways that perhaps might be a bit more effective for them at the stage of life they're at. How structured is your time at work? Ah, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, my time at work, if I reflect back seven years ago, was very structured. So very, very structured. Like, you know, back-to-back meetings, constantly in, you know, very similar one-on-ones, very standardized kind of meeting cadences, very, very standardized. The journey for me to rethink that started when I was at Atlassian and you know, I had teams in, I was in California and then had teams in Australia, India, East Coast of America, and I'm on the West Coast. And so trying to deal with those, all those different time zones is really, really complex, right? It, it's not easy. And of course, you can just schedule around it, but you have to think, well, is there a better way to solve that problem? And so my time started to become less structured then because it was like, well, how can I progress the work asynchronously or in a different way? And I learned that, to be honest, from Trello because Trello were fully remote from day one. And they were like, well, if we can resolve something asynchronously, then let's do that. But then if we need to raise the bandwidth to a synchronous meeting because we can't resolve it, then let's jump on a call, right? So your time becomes less structured. And so that was really that evolution to where I'm at today where Yes, there is still some structure to my week, obviously. You know, I think you have to kind of, you have to have some, but then I do have larger blocks of unstructured time that are dedicated for deep work or deep thinking about specific problems. And also I try not to default to, okay, well, the expectation is there's a standing one-on-one with my direct reports every Monday this time. I'm like, why? Why do you need that? Like, yes, we need to meet. There is always a time to meet and discuss things, but trying to get a bit more creative or to actually think through why you need to meet has been kind of a a real uh, thing for me. And also for Dropbox, you know, I want to, which as you said, we'll probably talk about in a moment. But so, yeah, my time now is a mix of structured and unstructured, but I do try to make sure that that 
structured time as a really definitive why. And then the unstructured time is there for deep work, deep thinking, or to jump into synchronous discussions if we need to do that. So speaking of synchronous discussions and meetings, Zoom fatigue is a reality that I would imagine that everyone listening to us has experienced recently, you know, this impact that it's had on our lives. We've been thrown into this for a large time. For many people, it was virtual only uh, culture at work. And you've said about this, about the impact of meetings on people's lives. One of the most common reasons that we are overloaded is that we create too many synchronous meetings and we make it okay to constantly bombard each other with emails and instant messages. We've created a cultural norm where being back-to-back all day long equates to some badge of honour and the illusion of being effective. So given that you feel quite clearly quite passionately about this topic, what does the meeting culture that you've tried to create at Dropbox, this virtual first Dropbox, what does that look like? Yeah, so I mean, probably warrants a slightly longer answer. I mean, when the pandemic happened, it was obviously incredibly unfortunate, so much devastation. But what it, it what we did think at Dropbox was that this was an opportunity to rethink and redesign how work happens, right? You know, the Dropbox mission is to design an enlightened way of working. And so if you actually are intellectually honest, I think if you look back prior to the pandemic, work wasn't super enlightened, right? It was, as I've mentioned, we're in back-to-back meetings, being busy, quote unquote, is seen as good. Whereas actually, shouldn't it be about effectiveness, not just being busy? You know, the advent of technology, Things like messaging platforms, email has just stretched the day. So nine through five was an advent from the factory days, factory work from like the industrial revolution. Technology just enabled that to go from seven through eight or all day, all night, if you wanted. It didn't actually bring us more effective time to make us more productive in our roles. It just lengthened the amount of time that was, you know, expected of us at work. And so when the pandemic happened, as destructive as it was, we, we used that as an opportunity to essentially challenge all of those assumptions about why work happens nine through five in the same place. Why do we, you know, why does we just have an eight hour block where it's just normal to go to work, right? And to challenge many of the other assumptions that we had, like, you know, certainly prior to the pandemic, many large companies were saying, well, remote won't work for us. It's okay for a small company, but we're too big. It's like, that's just the an assumption, right? There's not actually, there's no data behind that, right? And then what's happened since then is you've seen a lot of companies embracing different models of work. But Dropbox, how we've tried to structure, coming to your questions around meetings, is the Dropbox model is called virtual first, and I'll just explain it. It means that virtual or remote is our primary way of working. Okay, so that's predominantly how we're talking now and how you'd have the majority of the meetings. We do, however, believe that it's important to have moments where you meet in person. We do believe that that is a very foundational piece of work. It's just, you really need to be intentional about when, why, and how you're meeting, right? And so we try to talk about that as um, intentional moments of um, meaningful collaboration or culture building. Essentially, when we really need to discuss something in person, let's really do that. Not just because it's a specific day of the week or, you know, whatever it might be, right? And so, Within that model of remote and then some access to like in-person time, we've also broken up the day so that we've created what we call core collaboration hours, which is nine through one, 
which is where you're in your local time zone. So it could be different depending on where you are in the world, but nine through one for me in San Francisco. I'm expected to be online through nine through one for synchronous moments of collaboration digitally. So it could be answering Slack in a timely manner, email, meetings, brainstorms, whatever it might be. Outside of nine through one, we encourage employees to create their own non-linear workdays. So if you want to work one through five, if that works for you, that's fine. If you want to take a break to go for a walk, if you need to do childcare, whatever it might be, and then you want to work in the evenings, that's totally fine. But, you know, or if you want to work early before nine through one, that's totally fine too. But we're giving people the flexibility to focus on their outcomes not just working between nine through five, right? So, and just to be clear, we're not making the day only four hours long. We're saying, no, you need to achieve the outcomes that you've stated for the business, but how you do that, we're giving you more flexibility around. Just on on this, Alistair, I know that previously you've said something to the effect, and I believe the word abhorrent is the one that you used, that you, (laughs) you believed it was abhorrent when companies, and I'm not suggesting Dropbox does this, when companies track their employees' time. And I think you were speaking in the context of monitoring their uh, company devices to know whether or not they're working. This ability to, after one o'clock in your local time zone, to spend your time or invest it in a way that you see fit but still have to achieve the objectives that you've committed to, is this with respect to the employment agreement, you know, where often we have employment agreements which state a, a, a number of hours that people have to work. Like, is, it, is there an internal expectation that hours will be met or have you completely divorced the concept of, of hours that you're contracted to work from the objectives or the outcomes that you're actually seeking? I actually would need to double check like whether we change the contract. I think the, the contract has actually remained the same. It's just the, it's just the generic wording. And I think actually in different countries, they can only, we can only state different things, right? So it's more though the cultural expectation around focus on outcomes. That's what we're trying to focus on. Focus on the outcomes for the business and for our customers. That's really what we want to, individuals to focus on. Um, because ultimately that's what, we should be, right? Going back to that busyness kind of comment, right? We've said busy is good, but we didn't say, does busy equal effective for the business and for the customer, right? And so what we're really focused on is not busyness, is are you being effective in your role? And are you achieving good outcomes for our customer and for the business? And so that's really where we focus. You know, coming back to this, this synchronous time that you asked about meetings, one of the other things that we've given employees, because or we've tried to help employees with is, when we started rolling this out, we treated it almost like a product, right? That was my involvement. I was co-leading this with HR. So myself and HR were co-leading this. And typically in most companies, it's an HR initiative, right? It's like policy and process. Whereas Dropbox approached it more like a product and like, how do you actually iterate and retain a learning mindset through this, knowing that we may not have all of the answers. And that was how we communicated it to our employees. And we started rolling out, but we did small pilots. So it was like, okay, we're going to roll out to 60 people, this concept of core collaboration hours. We had a qualitative researcher following these people. What could we learn from these employees? Like what worked really well, what didn't? And what came back were really heartwarming qualitative anecdotes around, you know, caregivers who no longer felt guilty about having lunch or dinner with their kids, whilst also being a contribute really meaningfully to their work. But what also came back clearly was, okay, I get it, core collaboration hours, but how do I have less meetings? 
like how, like physically how, like tangibly how, because when you dig into it, there's like a hundred years of ingrained habits here about how work gets done that you're trying to break. It's nothing to do with Dropbox. It's just how we assumed work gets done. And so one of the important things we learned from that was giving people almost scaffolding or frameworks to help them, you know, diagnose and, and break down some of these problems. You can all look these up. The virtual first toolkit, which is externalized, is 20 step-by-step -step guides for how you change habits. And it's somewhat design thinking at play, right? Because it's all self-serve. Um, it's all based out of research and lessons that we learn from listening to our employees to help them understand, you know, how and when should I meet? And so one of the really interesting acronyms that, that you know, we, we use internally is kind of the three Ds, you know, synchronous time should be reserved or meetings essentially should be reserved for important decisions, important discussion or important debate, right? It's a very simple thing. And too often meetings, the reflex is, okay, we'll just schedule a meeting for that, right? Where it's like, well, what are you trying to do in that meeting? It's like, oh, it's a status update. We don't, it's, you're not discussing, debating, or deciding anything. So why there's, there must be a better medium for how you can communicate. But again, the habit is just reflexively schedule a meeting, reflexively schedule a meeting. And so we're trying to break those things down. And, and then we've even gone so far based on that research, we gave people permission to say no to meetings and we gave people short one-liners for how to respond to meetings that didn't have an agenda, that didn't have a clear outcome. And again, we gave people permission to say, hey, like, is there a better way to solve this essentially? And can we start asynchronous before moving synchronous, right? And that was, again, one of the kind of behavior shifts that we were trying to kind of marry to was going from synchronous by default to asynchronous by default, right? And so that, those kind of different behaviors are very interesting. I can see how saying to a peer, hey, this doesn't seem like this warrants a meeting. Let's explore another way of achieving the outcome that you're seeking. I can see how you can couch that and that can be useful in reducing the, the load, the meeting load that people are under. How, if at all, have you tried to shape the culture or shape the ability for people to communicate that when there's a status imbalance at play? So if, say that I'm, I'm one of your, I don't know, uh, principal designers and I'm communicating with you about something, uh, you say, let's have a meeting about it. Like, where does that leave me and my ability to address that status imbalance? Of course, it's a good question. And what we noticed again from our research and when we looked at internal data uh, and something that we proactively tried to do is, you need to model the right behaviors from the top down, right? And it can never, I don't believe anything can just be tops down. Like, I don't think that really works. You need a bottoms up, but you do need leaders to model the right behaviors. And so whilst we're now seeing tremendous results with virtual first, you know, like I think the most recent stats are 78% of employees feel more effective in virtual first than they did prior, like 84%. Um, of meetings happen within the core collaboration hours kind of window. But certainly it didn't always look like that. I'm not going to say it was just rosy from day one. It was difficult from day one. But when we started to look, again, intentionally, treating it like a product, right? If you start diagnosing, okay, which teams are doing really well with virtual first? And what you noticed when you just went and did research, even you could do surveys, but even just going and talking to people, 
it was often down to the manager or the leader. Like, oh, well, we're really succeeding in virtual first because insert name has really helped model the behaviors that they expect from the top down. And that goes all the way up to, to the top, right? And so, but what we then did was based again, you know, one of the principles we wanted to take a learning mindset to this, right? So we rolled it out, got some feedback. It was working in some areas, not working in others. What we did, we went, when, then went and like investigated, why is it working here? Why is it not working there? And one of the big lessons that we got from that research was managers play an outsized role in how they shape culture in the teams, right? And whether that's a virtual first culture or, you know, performance-based culture or whatever type of culture you're trying to, to, to create, managers make an outsized kind of impact on that, both positively and negatively. And so then based on those lessons, we were like, okay, we need to target that cohort of managers and arm them with the why behind the virtual first model. Because again, when you go and talk to some of those managers about why they weren't adopting it, they didn't understand why. And there's obviously famous books on start with why, right? And so, you know, that was what was really key. And so we then started to roll out quarterly manager training. How do you actually adopt virtual first practices all weaved into the kind of quarterly manager training? We started doing regular communications and consolidated communications to really help shape employees' perception of what, where we were trying to get to and also targeted at managers about how they played that outsized role and give them training and lessons in, in how to adopt virtual first. And so that was really, really important uh, because I agree with you. You know, if your manager's not modeling those behaviors, then how else, how are you supposed to as someone in that team? And, and we did lots of other things. Like I posted my calendar on our internal blog, right? Which was totally open with how I was adjusting to virtual first. We had other key leaders post, you know, how they were adjusting to virtual first. And so lots of different micro tactics to all ladder up to the kind of why behind we, why we were changing the way of working and where we were trying to get to with, uh, with virtual first. I had a conversation with Jeff Gotthelf last week, I think, and we were speaking about one of his observations consulting to enterprise. And that was that there's often a communication effort to try and change behavior and culture but in his observation, what's often forgotten is the way in which people are incentivized, which also mm -hmm. shapes their behavior. What changes to the way people are incentivized at Dropbox did you have to make or did you make any in order to make it easier for people to feel like they could adopt this new virtual first way of working? Yeah, I certainly do agree with the incentives point. The one thing that I will double down on with the communication though is kind of two things. Is that why? Why are we going towards this, right? Really helping employees understand that deep why I think really helped us as a company, right? And so just talking through the different reasons why we're behind it. The second thing that really helped us was we shared publicly as part of, or yeah, publicly externally and also internally, Hey, we're on a journey and there are five behaviors that we believe we need to go from to as a company, right? And so it was things like syncs all day, which was synchronous meetings all day to working asynchronous by default, right? So that's what we were trying to change. And this culture of going from busyness to impact, right? How do I be really impactful versus just being? And so that framing around 
the behaviors that we were trying to change, I can tell you from our experience, resonated very deeply with employees because they were like, oh, I get it. I get why you're trying to do these things. And this really helps me understand that I'm not alone, <laughs> that we're all going through these behavior shifts together. And I need to go from here to here. There's some steps that I can take and it won't happen overnight, but hopefully we, you know, we will get there. And so just doubling down on that communication, I think those why and the behavior changes was really critical for us, but certainly coming to your incentives point, because I don't disagree. Some of the things that we changed, not early on, like not early on, but some of the things we have recently changed are, you know, we have obviously career ladders and career frame and career frameworks internally. And so we've had to adjust the language in those. And because they're obviously an incentive because every six months, that's how we grade our employees, right? And so those kind of incentive structures uh, are ways that we have slowly over time tried to make sure that the incentives for every single manager and individual contributor are aligned to kind of our way of working. But they were something that happened after, you know, they, they didn't happen early on. So yeah, that, that but that is what we've changed. Really. This move to virtual first and you start at Dropbox in 2020, the world, you know, completely implodes around the same time. You, you possibly, you thought you were going to be at headquarters and you'd have, you know, a, a, a big team there and, you know, life was going to be different for everyone, all of us. And then it yeah. wasn't right. This is a large design effort. You mentioned that you partnered with HR on doing mm. this, but this isn't what people typically think of when, when they're thinking of a VP of design at a product led company, you don't normally think, Hey, let's just completely design the culture of work and the way that we're working as well. And it's a, it's no. a magnificent example of design being applied to a rather wicked problem that's outside the context of product. Now, I've heard you talk about your role as VP of design, and you've said, and I'll quote you again now, I see my charter as designing across the seams of our organization and making sure that the end-to-end -end experience and the promise that we give customers at any touch point is lived throughout that customer life cycle. Why have you, at least it seems, defined your role so broadly? I mean, I think there's a number of, I mean, I'll start on the pandemic, like just to give everyone the full picture. So I, my first day at Dropbox is March 24th, 2020, which for those that remember, it's literally about 12 days after the US borders closed. And like every person, you know, my laptop was mailed to me and they're like, don't worry, we'll be back in a few weeks. <laughs> yeah, it'll all be <laughs> fine. It'll yeah. all be fine. Like we'll be back in the office. And then 18 months later, I still hadn't met anybody in person, right? I think, but coming to your question about, and I will say that when I joined Dropbox, I did not think this was going to be the first design problem that I would be solving. <laughs> like, but the pandemic created a confluence of events that, you know, landed with the virtual first uh, kind of my co-leading that. The, the charter question brought about being so broad though is I'll use a term that I don't really like. Um, but it's, you know, designers always wanted this seat at the table, right? I, I don't like that term though, to be honest, but designers have wanted that. But what I have quite often seen and when I mentor people, designers do have that seat. But then when they have that seat, it's like quite often they don't necessarily know how to engage with the business folk in the room or with the marketing folk in the room or with different cross-functional partners, which 
as you become an executive design leader and you've got thousands of people and very senior executives beside you, I think whilst you will always have your deep domain in design that you need to be accountable for and the user experience, I think more at that executive level, you have to be a strong cross-functional partner for your peers. Like you have to be. And I've, I can't remember if we, if we touched on this earlier. We definitely touched on this pre-show, but it's like, I think that applying the way you think about the problem. So applying creativity, applying a reframing to the problem and questioning the problem and questioning the assumptions that are, that the business has made can be very helpful at that executive level to help your partner in who might be the CFO or the chief people officer or the chief product officer or the CTO think differently about how to solve that problem. And certainly this virtual first is a good example where when the opportunity came up, personally, I was like, look, to me, this is a design problem, right? This is human behavior and changing human behavior. And, um, a and you can approach this in a design-specific way or design thinking and a human-centered design way. But then I also wanted to engage. And so I talked to Mel, our chief people officer, about why I thought that and why, how we could help, right? I wasn't trying to expand my remit and create a fiefdom or a kingdom or anything like that. It was just how can I apply my designer mindset to a problem that the business has that is going to be incredibly critical in shaping the kind of future of Dropbox. And so that was my intention. And, and just by reaching out across the aisles, designing across the seams, being a strong partner, I feel, I feel quite proud that we've had such a positive impact on, you know, Dropbox's lives and, and the way in which we're thinking about, you know, this future of work. So that's kind of why I see that remit as quite broad. Um, and, but it's more about engagement with those cross-functional partners. Be curious. Like I've mentioned that a few times, be curious, ask questions. How might you help, you know, your partners think about a problem differently? And that's really what I'm passionate about, just applying that design mindset to different types of large-scale problems and small-scale problems that I have in the design team. But, yeah. And that sounds, that sounds really nice and sounds like a really appropriate and sensible thing to be doing when you're, you know, the most senior design leader at a company to be reaching across the aisles to be asking questions. Mm. But there's some nuance here, right? Because questions, I think Sam Ladner, who's a principal researcher at Workday, described them to me as, or the why question, as a three-letter world destroyer. So you can use questions for both good and for bad, or they can be interpreted uh, in different ways depending on how you ask them or the approach that you take. So fill me in here. What You're at the risk of being perceived at least to be expanding your remit past what it may be in your job description. You're at mm. risk of standing on people's toes here. You're new to the company, so you don't have necessarily the, the relational capital yet established. Yeah. What were the finer points of the approach? Like how do you open up those conversations? Like what is the, the thing or things that you can point to that you feel made you effective as the design yeah. leader in that conversation, in that context? It's a very good, it's a great point. I haven't heard the why question is the, what did you, what did Sam call it? A, a three-letter three world destroyer. <laughs> That's great. I like that. I might start using that. The, the thing that I come back to, well, firstly, let me, my experience at Atlassian where I managed remote teams and had to build relationships with remote employees, people that worked for me, partners, 
really helped stand me in good stead for when I joined Dropbox and the world was just fully remote. I was like, okay, well, I whilst I had an office in Mountain View that I did go to most days, the majority of my team were remote, right? I was building relationships remote. So I had a bunch of tactics already, like I've mentioned, working asynchronous by default, right? And what that means is keeping a Confluence page or now a Dropbox paper document where you can, with an employee, where you can consolidate information not Slack because Slack, like, you know, instant messaging is great, but it can also be destructive. It's, it's like quite um, interruptive, but consolidating documents into one paper doc or a Confluence, Confluence page, and we can work asynchronously in our time zones to move work forward, right? But if you can do that, you start, that's a tactic. You can start actually building up trust with people because you can actually move work forward. You can also destroy trust in those environments. But what I learned and what I mean by that is if you, you would have done this, pick your tool of choice, Jira, Asana, Dropbox paper, Confluence. When you get like 20 deep in a comment thread, right? Where it's just like people going back and forth, you're, you're eroding trust there because the me the meaning behind what you're saying is getting lost. And what I learned though, from that experience is you have to understand when to raise the bandwidth. So stop eroding trust and say, hey, time out. Let's just talk synchronously about this, right? Let's just jump on a call because we'll probably resolve it. And you will then build trust, right? And I made my share of mistakes at Atlassian on eroding trust, but I learned from those in terms of how do you build trust? And so those are more tactics though about how you build trust. The, the thing that I ladder up to is how I think about building trust and relationships in general, which is more of a framework around when you're sharing information, is what you're sharing credible? So it's not just your opinion, Alistair opinion says, right? It's like, no, this may be my opinion, but it's informed by this set of data, this experience, this et cetera thing. So is what you're saying credible, right? Can you back it up with some form of data? Then are you reliable as a partner? Okay, so I meet with you, Brendan. I'm gonna get back to you by the end of the week. Do I get back to you by the end of the week? Right. Do I, do I actually follow through all my promises? Right. Then if you're thinking about it like an equation, which I often do, it's like divided by showing that you care. And what I mean by that is when we, you know, take our introductory chat, we jumped on, we didn't just, you know, say, how are you? And then jump into the, the first thing. We actually were like, how are you? How's your day? Then you listened. And I've mentioned this. You actively listen. Then you ask a follow on question. Then you may ask another follow-on question. So you're showing that you care about that person. You're not just, you know, it's not performative that you're just like, how are you? Great. Let's go straight to the action, right? Like, because then you don't, you're not showing any empathy, right? You have, we're all humans. And, you know, you talked about me being a father. I'm a father, a failed professional footballer. <laughs> like I'm a brother. I'm a Sorry son. About I'm that. Yeah, I know. I'm lots of these things, right? That you are too, right? And so we're just humans as well as the job that we have. So showing that you care. So those three things, credibility, reliability, showing that you care, help you build trust, in my opinion. And so coming to your question about how did this work, I certainly wasn't just sitting in meetings going, well, that approach is wrong. <laughs> Let me tell you why this is not going to work. It was a genuine curiosity and then when I did share information, it was like, and I actually had, I was fortunate that Atlassian, I always, I did not create, but I was a big advocate for something called the team playbook uh, that Atlassian had. 
And so I'd seen how that had changed people's behavior, right? And so how it had actually really helped change the way that we built products. And so I shared information and statistics, credible information about how that had helped change culture. And then that tweaked an interest in Mel who wanted to, me to explain more. And then, you know, so you start building up these different kind of relationships in that way. And so, but that's how I generally think about networking, building relationships is that kind of credibility, reliability, showing that you care, like building that empathy for people. And again, there's lots of tactics underneath that that, that allow you to do that, whether you're remote or if you're in person too, right? We've all had this, you know, it's a silly one, but you know, when you meet in person, you know, do you have your phone on the table so that you're constantly like checking it? Like that shows that you don't really care unless you're like, Hey, I'm expecting a very urgent family call or something. There's a legitimate reason. It's just like there because I'm not present with you. Right. And so I think those are all small things that we miss in this kind of virtual or physical world. You spoke about Mel. Mel, is she the chief people officer? Yeah, she's a CPO, a chief people officer. Yeah. Right. So you you talked there about credibility being one of those three components, and how you yeah. had um, had been across the playbook at Atlassian and were able to yeah. bring some of that yeah. knowledge into the conversation. But it almost yeah. sounded as if, rather than you know, directly declaring an intention or an interest here, clearly you were obviously interested in the topic of virtual first and how you were going to do that. But it almost sounded to me like you were sowing seeds in a way that other people became curious and interested in what you might have to contribute to this problem. Absolutely. Like sowing seeds I actually use with many of my team because it's something you're trying to do over time, right? Mm. You're trying to actually, again, you know, as you become not necessarily even more senior, but if you start managing people, you don't just want to tell them what to do, right? Because that, there's, that's just taking away people's autonomy. But you may have an opinion that you that you might want them to follow. So how do you sow that seed in them? Um, and so, yes, definitely, that that is something that I think is very important. And then again, sowing the seed of not just like the playbook, but also, okay, treat it like a product. How can we, before we roll core collaboration hours out to 3,000 people, how do we roll that out to a small group and learn, like, did it work? Like, it's like hypothesis, right? You're building a product. What was your hypothesis? Our hypothesis was this. We ran a small test. It performed awesome, or it performed terribly, or it performed somewhere in between. And this is what we learned. Okay, great. We learned something. How do you iterate on that and actually take the good stuff and try and mitigate the, the things that don't work? And so just that way of working. And I think, though, the the other thing I'd say on that is, you know, you're sowing seeds. I think that's definitely a, a good, great observation, Brendan. But you're also, you're just being genuine about, okay, I want the same outcome. Like, here's, here's some ideas, credible ideas and reliable, reliability, you know, behind those ideas of how you might think about it so we can get to a better outcome together. Because, again, you know, you meant, we've talked a little bit about the football, but I honestly, I learned from that, that building, well, football is a team sport. You win and lose as a team, right? And building product and building companies is the same. It's a team sport and you win or lose, you know, as a team, right? There shouldn't be any finger pointing. And so that I think, you know, is something that I think was invaluable in building that relationship. And, and then also, again, just, you know, teasing it out a little bit more. My initial involvement wasn't, okay, you're going to co-lead this. It was... Can you deliver this one component? And it was the the toolkit. 
and my team again kudos to my team like um actually if anyone's listening so it's helpful like there's a remotely curious podcast that that we publish it's excellent like if you want to go and listen to some great insights into kind of how we built that and, and working remotely it's really awesome but the team then delivered a really good first version of the toolkit and so shipping something small helped build trust with a wider audience versus trying coming in and saying oh i think we should own the whole thing and you know it was like okay let me help you with this bit and then let me build trust that way mm-hmm. that's a really key key point that you're making is that you don't try and hit the home run necessarily the first time you're building you were talking about the credibility of information but you're also building your own credibility and that's feeding yeah. into what you're speaking there about how you generate trust and there are a number of tactics which you've quite eloquently described there i want to come back to your feelings on the term that is often used in design circles, which you touched on, which is getting the seat at the table. Yeah. What, what is it about that framing that irks you? What is it that you don't like about that framing? Um, it's as if there's some mythical, like literal physical table where all the decisions get made and you as a designer have no way of influencing anything that goes on there. I just think that, you know, we just talked about that, but it's like, you know, if you're, if you're intentional, you're genuine, you're showing great work, you can have more influence whether there's a table or not, right? Like it's like, and so that, that kind of irks me. That's the first reason that it irks me a little bit. And I think we often forget that we have more power and more agency over our future than, than we think, right? I, I, I do believe that. The second reason that irks me is that, you know, I think design has had that seat for a while, but I worry that we don't know how to engage there. And that is actually a a detriment to our discipline. And and don't get me wrong, like as much as I think a design leader is a business leader, we also have a deep accountability to building, designing great product, right? That is our core kind of T thing. But I think when we get to that table, we again, it's like, oh, well, what's being discussed is business talk. So I'm going to switch off or I don't know how to engage in that. It's like, no, if you're at a large, any size company and you're at that table, you have a responsibility to understand, okay, what is being discussed? Why, like what is happening with net new ARR? Like what is happening with churn? Like what, what are these topics that are going on? We're shifting to virtual first. What does that mean? Like how do, how is that going to impact my team? And leaning in versus leaning out, I think, is the way to go, personally. But yeah, they're the two reasons that generally irk me because, again, you know, I have I've spoken to designers that are like, oh, I have the seat, but I don't have the influence. Like, why well, don't I have the influence? It's like, well, are you leaning in? Are you being curious? Are you asking questions? And again, it's hard. Every situation is slightly different, but in general, the answers that get back are no. <laughs> like, you know, or what's being discussed there isn't design related. And it's like, okay, but, you know, design is a part of the business and the business as an overall needs to function and, and, you know, build great products for customers. Some people feel intimidated by that, by the business and the business conversation, you know, the things that are outside of our discipline. But I get the sense that you found, you find these conversations intriguing and empowering rather than intimidating i totally like there's a mike um mike hannah brooks who <clears throat> co-founder of atlassian 
He gives a wonderful TED talk on imposter syndrome. And Atlassian, if you're not aware, huge juggernaut Australian tech company, makers of Jira, Trello, Confluence, but had a very rapid ascent. And Mike shares a story in there where he was around the table with investors and VC and different people. I think it was the first board meeting and they were talking and, you know, he, he literally, he said he was taking notes. They thought he was taking notes. He was writing down words that he didn't know what they meant. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. And so, but what he was doing was like, right, I don't understand it, but I'm going to go find out. And, you know, he was sharing, he had imposter syndrome. And if he had imposter syndrome, just like, wow, like, cause he is an incredibly impressive person. And I think we all have that, right? It's how you manage it that is important, right? It's the same as, um, well, my analogy is like public speaking, right? Like people like, I'm not a very good speaker. It's like, that's just a skill you can learn. And also you have to manage, learn how to manage anxiety well and manage nerves well. It's hard. I'm not suggesting it's easy. It's hard, but it's a skill you can learn if you're curious about that. And the similar thing with like when there are discussions or conversations going on that I don't understand, it's like, I'm going to ask questions. And it might be hard to ask a question, but often a, a self kind of reference that I, that I give myself is like, well, if I feel scared about asking this question, it's probably a question that I should ask, right? Because actually it's, uh, it's probably too important to kind of let go. And it's okay to kind of ask those questions and find out more information. Because again, coming back to design, design is understanding the need, right? Design is understanding the need of the business or the customer and then designing a solution for that. To understand the need, you have to ask a lot of questions, right? You have to be curious. But I worry that, again, as a design discipline, we've lost that. And it's like, oh, here's 50 solutions. And yes, we need generative solutions, but what's the problem? Do we understand the problem before we go design the solution? Often we don't. Alistair, that is a very important point and question to finish on. Thank you. This has been such an enjoyable conversation. I really appreciate how generous you've been with your stories and insights today and also for continuing to bring a pragmatic, a compassionate and a thoughtful lens to design leadership for the design community. Oh, thank you so much, Brendan, for the kind words and thank you for having me on the show. Uh, I appreciate you uh, asking me on to share stories and anecdotes. I hope you found them useful been my pleasure, Alistair. And if people want to keep up to date with what you're doing and your contributions to the field, what is the best way for them to do that? LinkedIn is honestly the best one I would say right now. Yeah, LinkedIn. Uh, so definitely just add me on there. Please give some context if you do add me. Uh, that's always helpful. <laughs> just add a short note. Yeah, 100%. Thanks, Alistair. And to everyone who's been tuned in, it's been great having you here as well. Everything that we've covered will be in the show notes, including a link to Alistair's LinkedIn profile and all the chapters for all the topics that we've covered, they will be there too. If you've enjoyed the show and you want to hear more great conversations like this with world-class leaders in UX research, product management and design, then don't forget to leave a review on your favourite podcast app. Subscribe so it turns up every two weeks in your feed and also tell someone else, could just be one person that you feel would benefit from these conversations at depth. If you want to reach out to me, you can find me on LinkedIn. There's a link to my profile in the show notes as well, or you can head on over to my website, which is thespaceinbetween.co.nz. That's thespaceinbetween.co.nz. And until next time, keep being brave. Hey!